What's up, everybody? Episode 133 on All Out War. I'm Turner, and I'm in the studio with Rosie. What's up, Rosie? What's up, man? Rachel can't be with us tonight. She's doing the mom thing, as usual. Mm-hmm. But we, we let her know that that is unacceptable. I I would say just put the kids outside, let them, whoever let survives. Them right, yeah. Yeah, whoever survives gets it, right? Yeah. Keep them. <laughs> <laughs> Spartan style. Spartan style. <laughs> but she'll be back with us again soon. Um, what do you know, man? Hey, did you know that in 1908, the New York Times reported a story about a dog who would push kids into the, a river <laughs> in order to uh, uh, earn a beef steak treat for rescuing them. <laughs> Isn't that like a Hegelian dialect? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, dude, you want you want me to read the story? It's pretty quick. Yeah. It's called Dog, a Fake Hero. <laughs> he pushes children to the scene to uh, rescue them and win beef steaks. So uh, it says, apropos of the decision of so-and-so to employ dog auxiliaries for the patrol of lonely beats in the outskirts of Paris. A good story is now going, going the rounds concerning a splendid Newfoundland, which was a candidate for one of the recent field trials. The dog is a property of a man who lives on the outskirts of the scene, whatever it's French name. I don't care about yeah, yeah. pronouncing it correctly. They don't deserve <laughs> it to be. I, I hope I'm intentionally. Well, I'm just kidding, French people. I love you. Yeah, we love um, you. Some time ago, a, ch- a child playing on the riverbank fell into the water and was in imminent danger of being drowned. The dog, hearing the cries and the splashing, leaped over a hedge, ran down the bank, and plunged into the stream just in time to rescue the little victim. Naturally, the brave animal was made much of in the father of the child by way of recompensance. Re- I can't read right now, presented him a succulent (laughs) beef steak. Two days later, another child fell into the water and was rescued by the dog. The lifesaver received the same caresses and another beef steak. Up until this point, there was nothing extraordinary, but but rescues became more and more frequent. (laughs) Hardly a day passed (laughs) that some unfortunate infant was brought brought safely to the bank by the dog after an involuntary bath. It began to be suspected that the neighborhood was haunted by a mysterious criminal, and a special a special watch was inaugurated. Then the truth came out. It was the dog, the noble lifesaver himself, that was guilt that was the guilty one. Whenever he saw a child playing on the edge of the stream, he promptly knocked it into the river <laughs> <laughs> and then nonetheless promptly jumped into the rescue. He thus he had thus established himself a profitable source of revenue <laughs> you know they actually asked the dog they interviewed him and they said why were you doing this he says i did it for the beefsteak <laughs> <laughs> yo i did it for the beefsteak gotta do it for the beefsteak that's what i did for the beefsteak mm-hmm. i see that little kid coming down the street i just knock him in i grab him and get him a beefsteak if steakums hears <laughs> him he should be that should be the mascot for steakums <laughs> the dog yeah the newfoundland the newfoundland, newfoundland yeah. hound or whatever there we go. they're big dogs too they are very big it could knock a, a good-sized child down. It could knock me over. Probably, yeah. If it came running? <laughs> if he came running. Yeah. Drop your shoulder in. Mm-hmm. I'd fight a dog. That's right. Hey, I wanted to say real quick before we jump into the podcast, because this is an amazing episode. Yes. Uh, we have a great guest, but I just wanted to welcome all our new listeners, and I wanted to uh, welcome anybody who's new to us on Instagram, if you are giving us a shot. Thank you. Thank you. And we hope you're blessed, and you enjoy it, and you share it with your friends. Yes. Because we want to be big. Mm-hmm. We want to be... 
I'm who am I kidding? We're never going to be big. Uh, but uh, we're just happy that you're listening. Yes, we don't do this for to feed our families, which is always the good thing. You yeah. know, we can't be compromised by the by the man forcing us to yep. not say things and say certain things yes. like that. So, yep. so that's always a, that's always the plus. And I think we're going to have some cool news coming up soon mm-hmm. that we're looking forward to sharing very shortly. Yeah. Um, At the same time, we also do have a second podcast. <laughs> we do. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I was going to say, I just gave my testimony. So if you want to listen to that, we're going to start doing testimony series. So that's what you're yeah. missing out on. Yeah. If you want to hear the, how Rosie became to be Rosie, that's real. You really want to check it out. It's called the Warcast. And you can just uh, message me on Instagram, and um, I'll tell you, you the info. Yeah, it's it is a paid wall, is a paywall, and uh, we have a couple slots open still. We only have fifty slots, I think, total, and we only have a couple left. So, there you if, go. If anybody wants to, uh, it is limited. So if you're in it for the, you for know, the trial right now, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, anyways, thank you for giving us a shot. And at that, I would say, sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of All Out War, episode 133. We have an awesome guest who I uh, found by accident. I'm not going to lie. I was doing research on The Rapture, and uh, he has written a great book called The Rapture. And uh, his name is Ken Johnson. He's an author, a lecturer who speaks on a variety of issues and related Bible prophecy, ancient history, and the apostasy that will form in the church in the last days. He's received his doctorate in theology from the Christian College of Texas and Texas Arcana. And he is our guest today. And we're going to be talking about a number of different topics. It's going to be exciting. And Ken, I'm just thankful that you have the time to, to be with us and to, uh, to chat with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, so like it's our, our honor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It is our honor. Um, uh, like I said, I found you through some research I was doing on the Rapture. I was we had done a, several episodes on the Rapture in time stuff, and uh, I was really struggling through um, answering questions that people were presenting to me that were in opposition to a pre-tribulational Rapture, which is the view that I have held for all of my salvation. I was saved in 1988. And so it's hard to move me off of it just, I think, out of stubbornness and and (laughs) so long sitting in that camp. But um, it was a very helpful book. And I would recommend, and what I'm going to do is all of our listeners, just so you know, um, I will make all of the connections for uh, Ken available on the show notes. He's got a YouTube channel. You can look for that. It's Ken Johnson. Um, he's available on Telegram. It's BibleFacts.org. He has a website, BibleFacts.org. And uh, so you can... you can, tons of books. <laughs> tons of books so on good. Amazon. Prolific. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and and they're not, they're not these big, heavy, you know, 200, 300 page books, which is really nice. You can, they're, they're right to the point. So I appreciate that too, because I'm not, I'm not a... Uh, an avid reader like that, you know, I won't sit down and chew out a book in like three days. It takes me a while. So I appreciate that. So let's start. Um, 
let's uh, you have done extensive research on the Dead Sea Scrolls and you were just yes. talking you were just talking to us about that. Share with us a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how those are important to us today. Well, the interesting thing about it is and I, I kind of did the same thing. I, I'm a Calvary Chapel guy. Uh, I have been for the past 20 years or so. But I grew up and went through lots of different denominations, and then I started looking at the early church fathers to see what the disciples of the apostles taught, kind of pull all the theology together. Hmm. It pretty much agreed with everything that I'd thought about or, or, or believed. That's how I became a Calvary Chapel guy. And then as far as the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in seminary, we looked at them, but this has been a long time ago, like back in the late 80s. And so basically all it was is major copies of uh, the, the scroll, the scriptures, rather. And so that's cool. That proves that nothing's been changed, but that didn't help us much. But in the late 1990s, their theology and the rest of the scrolls that we have came to light. And so the interesting thing about it is that they basically uh, teach Christian theology. And that makes sense if you think about it. If, if the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets and spoke to King David, I often wondered how would David not know of a trinity, for instance, or not know certain things about the Messiah. And he knew a lot, according to the scrolls. And so it's just really cool to see uh, those kind of things. As far as the rapture goes, I'd always been a pre-trib rapture guy. I went back to the early church fathers and found out they... Uh, well, the majority of church fathers don't mention prophecy or don't mention the rapture at all. Uh, they're all premillennial, very, very clear on that, mm -hmm. those that talk about it. Hmm. Um, and then those that talk about the rapture usually just talk about the rapture. It happens, and it's cool, and, you know, does, does, they don't say anything about a timing. So it gets down, hmm. basically, and what I did is I just looked at the first 200 years. Mm -hmm. And my concept is if everybody in the first 200 years said, we learned this from the apostles and they all teach the same doctrine, then that's probably true. And then in the third century, all of a sudden things change and nobody knows why. And so, but there's at least six uh, early church fathers that are pre-trib, and it's very, very clear that they're pre-trib. Um, and among other things, too, a lot of people don't believe in the Nephilim theory, you know, from Genesis 6, but that was consistently taught by the rabbis, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Church Fathers, um, basically all that kind of stuff. So to me, it's it's very important. And as far as the Dead Sea Scrolls are concerned, it's really important to me because, you know, Paul says in the end times the Church would start apostatizing and get worse mm -hmm. and worse. During that same time period, though, the uh, believers in among Jews get more and more godly and more of them come to knowledge of Messiah. And I think that's directly connected with the scrolls, because you're taught by the rabbis that Christians are weird. Just stay away from them. They don't know what they're talking about. It's all a bunch of lies. Well, that's fine, but then the Dead Sea Scrolls come along, and they're about 400 years before any of the rabbis that are, you know, Pharisee type, and they teach Christian doctrine. So that means at the very least, we didn't make anything up we inherited our stuff from the Old Testament prophets, which is basically what the New Testament says. And so when you look at that, it's like, okay, forget churches per se, because maybe they are weird now. It's been 2,000 years. <laughs> but the bottom line is, there is a Messiah. He came to die for our sins. Like, for instance, my favorite Dead Sea Scroll is 11Q13. And it basically says that the Messiah is God incarnate, 
He comes for the purpose of dying for your sins. That somehow reconciles you with God and takes care of the problem we have with God. The event happens one Shemitah after the end of the ninth jubilee of the eighth Una, which on their <laughs> calendar system, and it sounds funny, but it's just their uh, their calendar system. According to that, that actually ends up being 32 A.D. Hmm. Wow. So the Messiah is supposed to come and die for our sins in 30. Give or take a year is fine, but I mean, that's what they taught. Once that happens, our sins are forgiven, and the age of grace starts. And there's a whole bunch of other things that are talked about. So that's just one particular small scroll, but the scrolls are full of stuff like that. And so it's really important for Jews to see this and begin to realize somebody's lied to us along the line, and they need to start exploring these things. So let's for the listener that's not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe they've heard of them, but they just don't understand what they are and, and what... what what makes them what they are. Can you give a real brief ex- explanation of that? Yeah, basically, uh, the Jews always believed like they're supposed to when they came back uh, from Babylon. They, they believed in the Messiah. They had what would be considered proper Jewish doctrine. And then when we get to the—that's the close of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. When we get to the New Testament, instead of Jews being brothers and everything's fine— You've got Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians and, and Samaritans and all these people trying to kill each other. <laughs> so something happened in that missing 400 years. We used to call it the 400 silent years between the Old and the New Testaments, and nobody really knew yeah. anything about it. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the history and the theology of the Essenes, mm-hmm. and their, their history is that they map out that 400 silent years, and they tell you exactly what happened so basically, the Essenes, uh, led by the Zadok priests, are a denomination, if you will, of Jews. So there's Pharisees and Sadducees, Essenes, and, and things like that. Uh, and we know from the New Testament that the Sadducees didn't believe in spirits, didn't believe in life after death. Um, the Pharisees did, but the Pharisees had a oral Torah that was kind of made up. Hmm. And the Essenes kept all of the ancient history books. And so that's basically what we're talking about. So, and these were these scrolls were discovered uh, by a shepherd boy, if I'm remembering correctly, in Qumran, in a cave. Uh, am I correct on that? Yes, the, this last go around uh, back in the 1940s. Okay. Um, uh, when you go back and look at history, uh, everyone knew about the Essenes and the fact that they were in Qumran, and that they probably left uh, valuables behind. And throughout the centuries, people would go look for things, and if you could find something in the Judean hills, there are patriarchates and churches that would pay a lot of money for something like that. And then you've got people that would make fake ones up, you know, just to sell and make money. So, but all through the centuries, everybody knows this. But finally, Israel comes back as prophesied. And what's interesting about it is in um, Isaiah chapter, I think it's chapter 29, It talks about Israel coming back, and the description is very clear. Uh, Anytime you see Israel coming back, it's either 536 B.C. under Cyrus, or it's 1948 from Mm. the Roman expulsion. So you look very careful at what's going on. It's talking about 1948, not not 536 B.C. And it very clearly says that there's a war, everybody attacks them, but in in a moment it'll be like a bad dream and everything will be gone, and Israel will be 
solidified back in her and, and be back in God's grace. But when this happens, the old ones begin to speak out of the dust of the earth. Hmm. And the very day that Israel became a nation, uh, the story is told by Israel Yarden, who was a professor, and he had wanted to get the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls into Israeli hands, and it was expensive, so he had to wait a long time to get enough money to go buy it. He finally got enough money from the university, went down and bought the scroll, and then on the way back to the university, he found out he couldn't get there. Apparently, Israel had declared its independence, and as a sovereign state, and a war had started. <laughs> so he had, to, he had to take it elsewhere, and then eventually it's... So it's really cool, and the very first scroll, of course, is the prophet Isaiah. Wow. So I've often wondered, did Isaiah know it was his scroll that would be the first of the old ones speaking? But the church fathers tell stories along the lines like this, too, but there's a lot of reasons for it. But I really believe the Dead Sea Scrolls are the rest of the story, hmm. and it's going to help in a lot of people coming to the Lord. That's incredible. Yeah. I've never heard it put that way. Uh, I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't... Uh, I, just this point about uh, this the first scroll being Isaiah, isn't that – that's what Jesus to declare himself when he uh, he read out of Isaiah. Is, yeah. Right? But mm -hmm. the, the first recording we have, yeah. That's, uh, it, that's pretty crazy. All that. That's, yeah. It's a wild story. I think, I think uh, the Gospels record him a couple times. He'd go into uh, – Synagogue. In a synagogue, yeah. And they'd hand him the scroll. Right. So he, so he wasn't even picking it out. Right. You know? And, and then he would read – I think I can't recall, but I know he says today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Mm -hmm. It might have been mm -hmm. Isaiah fifty-three. I don't know what what it was that he read. Uh, Sixty, I think, or one of them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's pretty cool that Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah is just the book is incredible. Um, it's yeah, so, amen. Um, so were there parts of? Uh, am I wrong in thinking that there were parts of the New Testament that were discovered with parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls as well? Um, there are some fragments, uh, and the fragments are so fragmented mm. that it, it may or may not be. So mm. there's no definite proof there's any New Testament doc doctrines, okay. or I mean documents, in the Dead Sea Scrolls proper. There are things elsewhere, that, but not, not with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, you mentioned, like, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity, and you, you mm -hmm. said, like, David would have known about that. Yes. How how would he know that? Because I remember when Jesus rose from the dead, and then he and the road to Emmaus, he's talking to the two people, and mm -hmm. it says with the beginning with the Psalms and the prophets, he explained to them everything concerning himself, and um, you know, and then he separates from them, and they have this moment where they're like, "Oh my, we just talked to the Messiah," <laughs> but mm -hmm. but uh, how would David know about the Trinity? in that regard like what well the the prophecies have always been you know that there's god and you call him a father and he's referred to a lot of times as hashem so there's hashem the father and then there's a consistent li list of prophecies about the messiah uh being god incarnate now that's not that hashem incarnates somehow hashem is still hashem right father is still the father and the Messiah is different, but somehow they're also the same person. So they didn't say it's a trinity or, or try to name it. They just said it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, all the prophets knew the Holy Spirit very well. So they right. understood that there's the Father, the Messiah, 
and the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, and that somehow these are God. Hmm. And that was the consistent teaching all the way through. And basically their concept is, you know, you get these people that say Messiah is just a uh, a guy that comes to uh, fulfill a war. He's just a man. And there is no spirit, you know, like the Sadducees said. So there's no Holy Spirit either. There's just God the Father. They considered that heresy because that's not what was taught. Hmm. You know, we, they have all the writings of the patriarchs, uh, which is basically like a last will and testament that's, that you would write to your kids. And there's a collection of those from Adam all the way down to Aaron. And uh, everyone agrees that those things existed, but everybody says, well, they're probably not around anymore. Well, the Essenes kept the entire library. No and way. it would be it would be debatable, except as a Christian, I believe the New Testament. So when I pick up the Testaments of the Patriarchs and I read them and their theology is identical to a Trinity and the Messiah and everything, there's no way. I mean, I have to take sides with the Essenes against the Pharisees. So I, I believe <laughs> there is a Holy Spirit. The Pharisees said, no, virgin birth, that, that meant something else. Right. And the, the Essenes were saying, no, virgin birth means virgin birth. Right. It's a girl that's a virgin that gives birth. I mean, it's not hard. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like today they'll, they'll argue that place in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 7, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you call his name Emmanuel. And they'll say, well, it could mean young girl. Well, young right. girls right. that are not married that wind up pregnant or executed, you know, so that. That's not a sign anyway. Uh, uh, an old woman giving birth would be a sign, you know, it'd be kind of odd. But the virgin part, and they actually have, they argue that the word Alma or, or Bethula means virgin or snot or that kind of stuff. But the scrolls are very clear. They don't even use those words. The, the scrolls literally say from the Testament of Nathan, literally says that there is a, uh, a woman who has never known a man. Mm-hmm. She holds in her arms her baby boy, who is the Lord of the earth to the end of the earth. Now, there's only ever been uh, two kings of the earth. That would be Adam and then Noah when it started over. And they both lost control. Mm -hmm. And so this other baby boy is a Lord of the earth. And it's hers. And she is a direct descendant of David. And she is a virgin. You know, and there's a lot of talk and explanation about this in the scrolls. So when you say uh, virgin birth means something else, it's like you're ignoring a whole lot of history from the temple library. Mm, Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the Essenes. Uh, Basically, um, the... um, We had Melchizedekian priests from Adam all the way down to um, Jacob. And And as you know, Jacob said, from now on, the king, kingly line would go through Judah. And the priestly line would go through Levi. So from that time forward, to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Levi. Well, you get Levi, Kohath, Amram, and then finally Aaron, uh, which is Aaron and Moses. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a prophecy that from now on, to be a high priest, you have to be a direct descendant of Aaron. Okay. And it's still a Levitical priesthood, but it's an Aaronic priesthood. So if you're descendant of, of Levi, but not of Aaron, you can do some temple stuff and help out, but you cannot really serve in the priesthood. Yeah. Well, when we get down to the time of David and Solomon, uh, there was a rebellion, and Solomon, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, from now on, you have to be a Zadok priest. Zadok was a direct descendant of Aaron. 
Mm. So it's still the Aaronic priesthood, but only Zadok priests actually serve in the temple, and they're the original priests. Well, when we get down to the beginning of that 400 silent years, there's another rebellion, a lot of things change, the Jews begin to apostatize again, they throw out the Zadok priests, and they actually end up having to flee to uh, Egypt for a while, which is part of a another Isaiah prophecy, actually. Mm -hmm. But they do this, and then the people that follow the Zadok priests call themselves, or are called Essenes in, he, in uh, Greek, and it basically just means healers. Uh, they were known to be experts in prophecy, and they had herbal medicine. Uh, the average lifespan back then was about 56. Mm. The average lifespan for an Essene was 120. Wow. Average, so the average lifespan? Average, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's just, it's just a double lifespan because of their herbal medicine. And we're still trying to gather all that information back because yeah. that would come in really handy. You <laughs> we know. could use that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah. So we're uh, exploring that area too. But So what happens then is the Sadducee groups form. And the Sadducees, if you think about it very carefully, Sadducee or Zedaki, uh, they have they took the name of this of the Zadok priests and mm. said we're the real ones, you know we just don't believe in anything, and so you have the Sadducee group and then the Pharisee group forms between the two of them and then the scribes form. So there's these different groups forming for different reasons. Hmm. Well, that was a, a really good setup for us because when you think about the temple and you think about uh, serving in the temple. Most of like guys in our camp, they're going to believe that there's a third temple that's yet to be built. Mm -hmm. And when that temple's built, how are they going to determine what who what line the priests are going to be able to serve for the sacrifices and all that are supposed to start up again? Yeah, the uh, scrolls talk about when Messiah comes to set up the kingdom, the Messiah will know. At this point, we don't know. I mean, just because your name is Cohen doesn't necessarily mean you're a priest, or maybe you are, maybe you're not, maybe your family knows, maybe it's confused. So there's really no way for us to know for sure. As far as the priests that are over there now, I don't know if they think or know for sure that they're Zadok lines or what, hmm. but we do know in the in the book of, of Ezekiel, in the last uh, 10 chapters, it talks about the Millennial Temple that it's going to be run by Zadok priests because of the prophecies. Yeah. So somehow it comes back. But this next temple, though, in the tribulation period, uh, it may not be a proper temple. It may not have proper worship. I mean, it's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. It's basically not even telling us God wants it that way. Yeah. It's just a prophecy saying Jews get together, the Jews rebuild it, then there's going to be an Antichrist just telling us stuff. Yeah. So you pull that out of, uh, so I get, okay, yeah, because my understanding was that when they came back from exile out of Babylon, they kind of lost a lot of their genealogical uh, records exactly, and, 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 and then throughout history it's just gotten worse progressively? Yeah, that's probably true. The, the Essenes kept uh, very good, there's, there's, one, uh, there's this one record that talks about, and we don't have it, but there is a very precise genealogical record mm. of who's who and who served and in what years and, and what prophecies were fulfilled and that kind of stuff. So it looks like the actual priests, because they kept the calendar and, and the genealogical records and all that, 
they probably knew. But when you have Sadducees and Pharisees wanting to usurp control and say they're actually the real guys, that's when um, things get messed up and actual documents disappear. Yeah. Fake news, right? Yep. <laughs> if you can change history, then you can uh, control the future. What? Um, one of the things that I was thinking about, too, was uh, during the uh, – because my whole, my whole question about the who would serve was mainly thinking premillennial – like when the third temple is going to be built, um, do you think that that temple will be destroyed and then the millennial temple that Ezekiel talks about will be made by God himself? I'm not sure um, if God does it directly all by himself or we have some sort of help, but it's obvious that the millennial temple and the tribulation temple are totally different. Yeah. Uh, They have plans. They have basically everything they need to do now to rebuild the temple. They have the a, a priesthood anyway. I don't know if it's legit or not, but a priesthood ready to go. And they've said that um, uh, ac- according to the law, they have to have the official government that's there in Israel now give them permission to take over the Temple Mount. Hmm. And once that happens, they can put up a, a tent, a tabernacle, and start sacrifices oh. within two weeks. See, I didn't know that. Wow. That's interesting. But I had heard that they could actually build the temple in probably like three months. They could get it done. It's not really, probably. It's not big, you know. It's not when you look at the dimensions. If they try and make it similar to what it was during, you know, uh, mm-hmm. during Nehemiah's time, it's not real big. But yeah, um, they have the architectural plans out. You can go to the uh, website of the Temple Institute and see a lot of the stuff that's already been made, and then the the plans for it. Yeah, man, that's. Uh, it's incredible that they already have everything made. All they need is a building. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you had mentioned, on, I was listening to one of your, or no, I was on the Telegram uh, that you guys have, and someone had mentioned on the Telegram about uh, leaders of Israel. There, there was a certain number of leaders of Israel that has to be fulfilled or something, and we were approaching, like, I think it was the number was like 18 or something like that, and we were at... Like they have this interim leader right now, and they're going to have somebody soon, like in the I think in the fall. But um, can you expound on that? Do you know what I'm talking about, or am I? <laughs> yeah, uh, there there's several prophecies along that line. Uh, there's a prophecy out of Micah chapter five talking about between the time of the second return of Israel and the second return of the Messiah would be uh, eight. Uh, principal leaders in Israel, mm-hmm. and the, the way you figure those out is that they have a war with Assyria where they take Syrian land. And so there's supposed to be eight of those, and that's happened four times, so we're about halfway through that. There's another prophecy, though, about shepherds from the book of Enoch, mm-hmm. and it talks about uh, from the time of the second return, there are so many government structures and so many people that rule in so many cycles. And it's kind of cryptic to understand, and I don't completely understand the whole thing, but I wrote about it in the commentary part of my book of Enoch. Uh, but it's between that and when the when the uh, second coming occurs. So uh, those, it's really interesting to see that, though, um, because it, uh, everything seems to be pretty legitimate. Uh, going back to the Messiah, for instance, uh, there's a prophecy given in the book of Enoch that from Enoch's time forward, the Messiah would be here in 70 generations. Hmm. And if you go to Luke chapter 2, and you go back and you look and start with Enoch and go forward and get to Jesus, it'll be the 70th generation. <laughs> so it, it's we, you have to understand that. It's like the old ones actually knew 
Messiah is coming, but it's not going to be any second. It's going to be, and you know, a generation is like, if if I had if I um, had a son when I'm 15, my generation's 15. If I waited till I'm 50 and had a son, that generation would be 50. So it's not a set number of years, mm. oh. but it's just generations. That but makes... you can tell it's like, well, my great great grandson will give birth to the Messiah. Okay, so that's <laughs> going to be a while. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, it all goes back to the original Genesis chapter 3 prophecy about, you know, that, that, the, that God pronounced, when he's cursing Satan, and he says, you're, you know, to, to Eve, you know, he's talking about your offspring will crush his head and he will, he will uh, bite his heel. Mm-hmm. And, and that, is, that prophecy alone carries through. It's, I think people underestimate the, the strength of those words. Um, mm-hmm. as they carried through, you know, for just in, from a clearly, like I think about like in general, um, all of the Babylonian religions, how they, you know, um, uh, Samaraeus, I, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, when her, when she was pregnant and she had Tammuz and she was trying to usurp that prophecy and, and twist it that he would be the one, the son of Nimrod or not Nimrod, but her, her lover right. <laughs> after Nimrod's death. Um, mm-hmm. It just blows me away. Now, one of the things that you had also mentioned was this number of 6,000 years of history uh, mm-hmm. leading up to the second uh, re- or the return of the second coming. How do we, where do we find that? And where are we on the scale, in your opinion, on, on the on the timeline? I was going to say, it sounds pretty close. If the, uh, We were just yeah, talking about all the... Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, the, the, the idea that we have 7,000 years of human history, and the last 1,000 years is a millennial reign, a literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that means we're kind of on our own doing whatever for the 6,000 years. And the uh, early church fathers, there were several people that taught this, and then the rabbis also, and the Dead Sea Scrolls all teach this concept. Um, and so, but the numbers are all off. So the current Jewish year right now is, uh, or the, the Pharisee date is what I call it, the normal Jewish calendar. It's Tammuz 19 today, it's Tammuz 19, 5782. Okay, and so it's like 160 years off from the Essene calendar. Hmm. The Essene calendar today is Tammuz 27, 5947. So we have exactly 53 years, a little less than 53 years, uh, to the year 6000, which theoretically, (laughs) by that time, we should have a millennial reign. Jesus is here. All the prophecies are fulfilled. Now, I'm not trying to set a date, and sure. I'm a little different than average. I mean, if, if, if there was a date in the scrolls or in the church fathers, I would tell you. Because right. I'm, I'm still not setting a date, but if someone else set a date, I would like us to know. Yeah. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses have set lots of dates. They've all been wrong, but <laughs> I'm going to tell you that, too. I mean, it's right. just there. Um, and so it looks like they knew a lot more than they're explaining it, but... Basically, uh, there's a couple documents that explain how the numbers got off, how we missed the, uh, you know, it was basically a conspiracy by a rabbi named Yossi to change because he didn't like people understanding Messiah came. Hmm. And uh, when you look at Daniel 9, it's very clear when Messiah comes. You can put it right on the calendar. And so they actually started saying if you use Daniel 9 to try to figure out when Messiah comes, 
you're under a rabbinical curse and you will never have eternal life. Oh my goodness. You know, and that's in the, that's in the Talmud and everything. It's like, don't look at this thing. And it's like, you know, anytime somebody tells you not to read scripture, ignore them. Right. They have no authority to send you to hell. No Pope can do this. No rabbi. So, and if the God gave you the scriptures, he gave you the scriptures. Amen. Now some, there's fake scrolls out there too, like the Nag Hammadi, the Gnostic stuff. Yeah. Total garbage. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are very, very important. But yeah, that's that's where we're at on that particular calendar. But it's been taught by, and it, that's what's really cool, the early church fathers, the rabbis, sometimes even the Pharisees, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, everybody. Hmm. Yeah, and I was going to say, uh, that's kind of a perfect lead up. We kind of danced around, not danced around it uh, knowingly so, but um, you, you just brought it up right at the end about the difference of the you know Nag Hammadi or the more Gnostic texts um, and you had also talked about having uh, that we have copies uh, correct me if I'm wrong that were in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the um, I can't think of the last will and testament almost of the uh, uh-huh. tr- you know of Adam and uh, these the, uh, the extra patriarchs. Ma- the patriarchs yeah yeah, yeah so, we have probably close to half of them they were fragmented so we don't have all of them sure but there are some amazing things. They consistently talk about the Messiah comes to die for our sins. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about that, for instance, is um, there is a prophecy that when Messiah is put to death by the priests, God will reject the priesthood hmm. and create a Melchizedekian priesthood among the Gentiles. And so it, that's what happened with the church. But the sign, if you're looking for it, the sign that Messiah or that God rejects the priesthood because they put Messiah to death will be the veil of the temple ripped in half. Wow. Now, Matthew tells us that that happened exactly when Jesus died, right. yeah. but he fails to tell us that that was a prophecy. Yeah. You know? So there's a lot of stuff in Matthew that says this fulfilled whatever prophecy, and then right around it is two or three other things where those are prophecies too. He just tells you that's what happened. So <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of stuff like that in there, but the Testaments are amazing. For instance... Uh, uh, it starts with Adam, goes down to Aaron, because that's when Moses comes along and then starts putting together the the uh, Old Testament. But just to give you one example is in the Testament of Aaron. Now, this is Moses' brother, and a lot of my Jewish friends absolutely believe that these things are legit. Hmm. But Aaron said that in the end, when Messiah comes, the he would be rejected by the priesthood, his kids, and his kids would put them to death. And that would not be a good thing. Mm. And he basically said, if you, if any of my kids are listening to me, if you want to be in God's grace, have nothing to do with the nails. Wow. Wow. That's all. Now, it's fragmented, so maybe he did explain more. But think about that a minute. Mm. They're going to put Messiah to death. That's clear. Have nothing to do with the nails. What are they killing with nails? I guess they kill him, you know. That's what the the whole thing is about. So there's all sorts of stuff like that in there. And again, it just fits with Bible prophecy. So Messiah came and died for our sins in 32 AD, had something to do with corrupt priests, and had something to do with nails. Hmm. So That's so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, again, this is, uh, again, just another prophecy of, I mean, just, I was going to say this is nothing groundbreaking, but... Before yeah. the act of uh, crucifixion was even invented, 
uh, you know, that prophecy, if he's talking about nails, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I guess kind of going in that same kind of line, um, I know Turner uh, has been reading a bunch of your books on these, but what about the, uh, I'm very interested in these, uh, I was going to say part of maybe kind of a, a two part, I'll, I'll, I'll start it up with uh, the people are familiar. I have a lot of Catholic friends. And uh, so they obviously uh, have in the Catholic Bible, if no one is aware, they have a lot of extra canonical uh, books. It's, uh, I think it's like one through three Maccabees, Book of Jasher, um, Bell and the Dragon. Bell and the Dragon. And I think, is there, it's like five or six if I'm, it's, I don't think it's more than double digits if I'm incorrect and I'm totally incorrect. But, um, you know, is there any value or um, credence to, or maybe if, if you could even go into the difference of why, um, you know, a Protestant wouldn't have them, maybe what a, um, even kind of taking the name, you know, are, we're all Protestants here, but maybe, you know, is there anything we can glean out of those? Or is it useful for us to read those extra ones? Are there ones to, um, you know, I, I was going to say, I know there's some other really other weird books that I was kind of hinting at um, where it's like, um, there, I can't remember the, the name. There's um, ones of like, uh, I can't, what's the one that has like uh, Noah being born where he's like shining and there's like all those the extra Gnostic texts? Yeah, that, yeah that's, from... the, that's Testament of Noah. Okay. Yeah, Gnostic texts are weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, basically, yeah, let me just go ahead and explain this. Please. Basically what happened in a nutshell is uh, we have the Old Testament being put together and it starts with, Noah, with um, Moses. Moses is a lawgiver. He does miracles. And he writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Then he turns it over to Joshua. Joshua does some miracles, like making the stun stand still and a few other things. And he writes the book of Joshua. So all the people writing Bible books are prophets. And they, they prove themselves by miracles. Mm-hmm. So I can't actually add to the canon. Uh, and if I was going to add it, you would expect me to do some miracle. If I can't do it, I shouldn't be adding to the canon. Right. So this goes all the way down to the time of Ezra. And in the Ezra apocalypse, this is a piece uh, uh, supposedly that Ezra wrote, but it's outside the Bible. But he says that the canon will now be sealed. Hmm. So the canon is the 30, 39 books that we have. So it's the the Protestant canon of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of other history books, genealogical records, there's actually other prophecy books, uh, some of which are very important for us to to look at, but they're not to be added to the canon. Even the Book of Enoch, it talks about in the last days of of his age, uh, there would be a collection of books put together that the righteous live their life by. Well, that's Mm. the Old Testament canon. And he says that his book specifically is not to be added to the canon, it's for those people in the last days. Wow. So it's to be kept outside of it. So what happens then is, if you believe that, uh, and, and this is why in a King James 1611, it was a compromise between the Catholics and the, and the Protestants. They kept the Protestant Old Testament, and they didn't put in the Apocrypha where the Catholics have it, which is scattered throughout the Old Testament. They kept it separate because of the Ezra Apocalypse. Now, the Ezra Apocalypse is added to the Apocrypha, that middle section, 
uh, only by Anglicans, because Catholics hate the uh, apocalypse because it talks about how Roman Catholicism forms in the next age and how it becomes a horrible demonic-like structure. So you'll never find the Ezra apocalypse in a Roman Catholic Bible, but you do find it in the King James 1611 because it's part of the Anglican canon. It's all Catholic except for the Ezra apocalypse. But if you believe the Ezra apocalypse, that's why that you keep the 39 books separate. And then, of course, the New Testament comes along and we have the 27 books and then that canon is closed. Now, we may have another canon in the millennial reign. Yeah. If that's the case, it'll be under Jesus and under the two witnesses. And you know, But right now, we don't add to the New Testament. We don't add to the Old Testament. Yeah. But that missing 400 years, a lot of stuff happened, and we need to know the history. So you got at least 1st and 2nd Maccabees, very important for dates and things that happened. And then you've got uh, a lot of the other stuff in there. And so those are uh, a good for historical stuff at the very least. I don't know that there's any real prophecy in them other than the Ezra apocalypse, hmm. which incidentally does talk about the rapture. Uh, <laughs> but that's but that's another subject. No, but, that's, um, that's not another subject. It's <laughs> not another subject. No. no. Okay. Oh, but uh, I, I do have a question. Then what happens is in the first century, uh, the um, the um, school of the prophets that was actually ongoing, but we call it Elijah's School of the Prophets because he really mm-hmm. formed it well, or reformed it. <coughs> Excuse me. But what happens is it's passed down from Zadok priest to Zadok priest, and John the Baptist, of course, being uh, the last of the Zadok priests of that line that actually ordains Jesus the Messiah, he has a, uh, a school. Well, when he follows Messiah and he gets killed, some of his disciples then follow Messiah Others think, okay, no, I don't think he's Messiah, so they kind of reject Messiah. So at this point, one of his old disciples was a guy named Simon Magus, and we see him in Acts chapter 7, I think, anyway, in chapter in the book of Acts. So what happens, he's a Samaritan, he's studying under John, studying the school of the prophets, all the extra stuff. He gets to the point where he's kind of fed up waiting on a Messiah, so he goes down to Egypt to study magic. He comes back with a handful of tricks, finds out the Messiah came, and it was all fulfilled. <laughs> and then he tries to actually buy the Holy Spirit like it's a bag of tricks, Say, uh, and Peter curses him. Well, Simon Magus then goes back to the people that rejected Messiah, the, the, the rest of the school. Now, the school of the prophets proper continues to go on, and it's handed off to Agabus, which is another guy yeah. we see in the Old New Testament, yeah. and it goes on down. But this other group starts off, Simon Magus takes it over and starts what we call the Gnostic schools. Mm. It branches off into 22 different Gnostic schools, and those guys are like total idiots. <laughs> I mean, it's some of it's perverted, but a lot of it, it's like a guy on drugs. It doesn't right. even make sense. <laughs> but uh, that's where we get all this weird Gnostic stuff. And so the Gnostic library is the Nag Hammadi library, and it was found in Egypt in 1947, right before the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hmm. And were found. And what's interesting to me, though, is the church fathers explained all this stuff, but everybody says, well, you know, church fathers, they make stuff up. I don't know that they ever made anything up, but <laughs> right. they find the, dead, the, the Nag Hammadi text, and sure enough, they, they teach the same weird stuff that they talk. So a lot of people ask me, like, well, you've made the book of Jasher, you've made the book of Enoch, 
when are you going to do the Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel right. of Judas, things like that? We're not going to because that's garbage. That's just junk. It's made up stories. It's not real. Well, how do we know this? Well, number one, the church fathers tell us flat out who, which cult wrote them and why and what's in them that's wrong. Hmm. And then now we have the Nagamati text that, yeah, sure enough, that's what it is. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, I don't know a single thing in the Dead Sea Scrolls that's not amazing, amazingly accurate. I don't know one thing in the Dostic archives that's worth even looking at. <laughs> that's incredible. That's well summed. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I have a question about Enoch and what, what mm -hmm. you said. You mentioned there that he said it should not be included in the canon because it's reserved for those in the last days. Yes. What Are we talking last days that we we are in right now or last days of the patriarchs before Messiah comes? Um, I think it's uh, the last days that we're in. Because okay. it's in chapter 1 that he says that, and then um, it's, it's Peter or Jude, I think it's Jude. Jude quotes yeah. uh, Enoch 1-7, I think it is. But the prophecy then is, he's talking about the end times when judgment comes. Jude quotes him and says that's when Messiah comes back with all his saints to judge the ungodly, right. etc. So if Jude is quoting it, and Jude understands by the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit's actually writing this through Jude. So the Holy Spirit is telling us that this particular prophecy from the book of Enoch is not first coming, but second coming. Hmm. And so, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. The first six chapters are, so, are all about righteousness and the second coming and how everything is established. Mm -hmm. So then you get a bunch of chapters talking about the Nephilim. Have you, have, yeah, that's really <laughs> cool. Have you um, seen a rise in interest in the book of Enoch over the last, you know, five, ten years or so? Yeah, I think so. Um, number several things have happened. Uh, Enoch was basically lost to us. All the, all the early church fathers uh, really liked the Book of Enoch. It's yeah. not to be added to the canon. We all understand that, but it's you gotta have it in your library. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere a couple hundred years later, they started saying Enoch was heresy, mainly because Enoch talks about the Nephilim. Mm. And what had happened was. You have all the rabbis, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all the church fathers, everybody agrees that Genesis chapter 6 is referring to angels and women. Right. And they, they not only tell us that, but they have the entire pre-flood history, the civil wars between the giants and what happened and why and how it ended and all that stuff. So they've got a lot of history, so they know exactly what it is. But what happens is um, uh, with with... I lost my train of thought there. What was the question again? Sorry. Um, was there a rise of interest in Enoch, and, and then you started to oh, share yes. why it went awry and people weren't you know, reading it? Yeah. Well, what happened was um, late 2nd century, early 3rd century, people started talking about how uh, it's really Sethites and Canaanites. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with angels. And so Enoch, since it gives a lot of the history, has got to be junk. I mean, if it didn't happen, and he has a whole history of how it happened, then they have to reject the entire book. So Enoch kind of gets lost in the in the uh, mid medieval times, but then it's found by R. H. Charles, I believe, and he's tr he translates it into English uh, in the 1800s. So it's only been around a couple of hundred years. Now the Ethiopic version has some alterations to it, mainly Jubilees and Enoch from the Ethiopic versions. Um, have um, the numbers are messed up. Mm. Uh, 
the chapters we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the stories are the same, it's just different numbers. So we do have to take it with a grain of salt, knowing it's went through several translations. But uh, recently, with all the uh, the stuff with the Nephilim coming out, uh, the DNA tests, and like in Peru, all that kind of stuff, a lot of people now are beginning to realize things. In the back of the Book of Enoch, it actually talks about the 70 shepherds prophecy. There's two or three prophecies that have been fulfilled already in our lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, and others getting ready. So apparently there's some real prophecy in it. And so a lot of people are coming up to look at that kind of stuff. So again, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They quote from it. The Church Fathers quote from it. You look at it, and it's got at least some legitimate stuff in it. The other thing was the calendar stuff came out. So there's an Essene calendar, just to be real brief with it, and they say that the Pharisees messed it up. It was a prophecy that they would apostatize and go to a lunar calendar, which is what the current Jewish calendar is today. It's supposed to be solar. And they explain all this in this. Well, the book of Enoch explains all the stuff with the dates and the calendars, and the Enoch calendar is the Essene calendar. Hmm. So again, it makes people go back and start looking at this. So there's a lot of things that have developed uh, that have pointed people to go back and start looking at this stuff. So the Enoch calendar was, or the Essene calendar was a solar calendar? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's it's the same one as we have in the Old Testament. So, for instance, the 14th of Nisan is Passover, mm-hmm. but the question is, when does the new year start? And the current Jewish calendar would say it's the, the new moon closest to the spring equinox. Well, the Essene calendar says it's the uh, Wednesday closest to the spring equinox. And they keep all the Sabbath cycles uh, mm. together. They have a leap week instead of a leap month. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, ours is really accurate. We have a leap day every four day every four years. Uh, they have a leap week every five to six years. That keeps all the mm-hmm. the Sabbaths in sync, and it keeps oh, it's a three hundred and sixty four day calendar. So it keeps all of the days together. So Wednesday is always the first of the year. Tuesday's uh, uh, always the day of Passover, the 14th and the Son. So it's really cool. You can go back through the the New Testament, and they'll tell you. If you ever noticed, it'll say, we did this today, and then three days later, this happened. Mm-hmm. And you're always like, I wish I could go back and figure out when that was. Right. You can instantly know what it is by looking at the Essene calendar. And then all of a sudden, you see these patterns and these prophecies out of stuff. <laughs> really, really amazing. Yeah. I noticed you had the Essene calendar on when you were doing your last YouTube. Uh, you had kind of the calendar up on the side there. And yeah. it was confusing to me because I don't understand it. But now I'm, <laughs> it's starting to make more sense to me as I'm listening to you mm-hmm. talk. But when it comes to the um, – that I'm going to go back to that 6,000 year again. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you're saying that the Essene calendar is probably more accurate than than the current calendar that we have from, from the Jewish – and was that calendar changed by the Pharisees after, like, was Babylon part of that when they were in captivity, that it would go to a lunar because of uh, some sort of pagan, you know, worship of the moon? Yeah, it, it actually started, the prophecy for the changing to a, to a, to a lunar part uh, started with Antiochus Epiphanes and his group. Mm. Uh, so if you look at the Seleucid Empire's calendar, it's exactly the same calendars what the Jews have today. It's a lunar uh, calendar setup, and so according to the scrolls, that's when that particular 
prophecy happened. As far as mixing up the, the years, uh, why they're not 53 years away from the year 6,000, uh, there's a book called the Seder Alam, and it was a guy who follows the Pharisee line back in 160 A.D., who tried to put together a chronology. So he'd use the Bible and whatever the Pharisees said. Except in the book, he gets up to Daniel and says, you know, obviously Messiah came and fulfilled this prophecy. With all due respect, we know what happened. Um, and then he begins to say that the, the, the problem is there was this rabbi named Yoshi that didn't like that. And he said, well, the prophecy of Daniel 9 isn't from the going forth to rebuild the Jerusalem to the death of the Messiah. The prophecy really means from the destruction of the first temple to the destruction of the second temple. It's really got nothing to do with the Messiah. And so he changes all the dates, and he's basically laughed at because you can't do that. You, right. you can't. The 200 years of Persian rule down to 20 years, you just can't do that. Yeah. And so uh, then he, he changes it again and comes up with a totally different theory on how to change the numbers. And again, he's laughed at and pushed out. Well, 200 years later, somehow, now we're 160 years off. So it's, it's this guy named Rabbi Yoshi. So it's cool that we have that from the Pharisee camp that explains how and why they changed the calendar. Let me ask you a question about Daniel chapter 9 and mm -hmm. um, the 70 weeks. Um, I've heard a position that the 70 weeks that Daniel talks about was fulfilled already. That when Messiah came, and it's, I think it's uh, around 20, verse 26 or 27, somewhere in there of chapter 9, mm -hmm. uh, where it talks about how he will end or cease the sacrifices, and it would be halfway through, three and a half years through. Um, and they would apply that to the, the covenant that was given when in the Last Supper, and then, you know, the establishment of the new covenant, and then... Messiah dying would be fulfillment that there'd be no longer a need for sacrifices. But I've always been taught that that is connected to the Antichrist setting up the abomination that causes desolation three and a half years through the treaty. What can you explain some of that better to me? Because it, it is pretty, it is a pretty strong argument. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, again, if we go back to uh, what the church fathers teach. They all teach that Jesus died at the, the end of the 69 weeks, that one week is uh, part of Daniel chapter, uh, is, is about the Antichrist. And they connect it with Paul saying that there's the, the week and the signing and then the Antichrist sitting in the temple. So they all teach what you and I have been taught uh, very, very clearly. But the one thing when you just look at Scripture— and, and it's really pretty straightforward. It talks about there's seven weeks, and then a wall and a moat is built. So the wall of the city is finished in, mm -hmm. in seven weeks. Then there's another 62 weeks, and then the Messiah is put to death. So the Messiah is put to death at the end of the 69th week. So it's very, very clear. So he dies, and then we have this extra uh, week. So if you think about it, uh, it, it's it's actually pretty straightforward, and, and you can't really argue it too much, because there is a uh, <clears throat> basically a gap between this. So if the person in, in verse 27, whoever this uh, this person is, it says that the Messiah is, is uh, cut off, then a prince comes and destroys the city and the sanctuary. 
So we know that this, that was Titus, and I think yeah. almost all the Jews will, will agree on that. Then the next verse has a prince, Titus or Jesus or somebody, some prince, coming in and stopping the sacrifices in the middle of that week. So if you look at it, Jesus dies, and then uh, 40 years later, Titus destroys the temple. Mm -hmm. Then you have to have another gap to where the Jews come, uh, come back in their land. And then after that, there's another gap, and they finally build a temple and start sacrificing. Only then can someone come into the temple and stop the sacrifices. Gotcha. So if, if Jesus died and Titus destroyed the temple, who after Titus comes in and uh, in the midst of a week after a bunch of sacrifices stops sacrifices? So you can see there there's very clearly a gap. So the church fathers, again, and, and all those guys uh, teach it properly, I believe. Awesome. That's great because that explains that the, exp yeah, yeah that explains it because it, it was a pretty strong argument that I heard another another uh, let's talk about the rapture now because we that's that has to do with end times and one of the uh, one of the common um, confusions I think that happens is people are well maybe maybe you can help explain it Matthew chapter twenty four um, when Jesus is expounding on the end times there. Is he, who is his audience that he's speaking to? Is he speaking to future believers in the last days? Is he speaking to the Jews that will come to believe during the tribulation period? And how do we differentiate between those? Well, yeah, it's, it's a little confusing. First, um, uh, Matthew 24 and 25 is the same thing as Luke 21 and Mark 13. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it first, Mark Mark is the, the smallest gospel. Luke comes along, and it's basically Mark, the exact same stuff, but he gives extra information. So then when you look at those two, and then you compare to Matthew, it's basically the same information, the same structure, but things are grouped together. So it's almost like someone said, hey, remember when Jesus did that one parable? Yeah! Okay, when was that? I can't remember. Okay, let's just throw it in the parable chapter. So mm -hmm. you can kind of see that all the parables are together, all of this is together. Right. And in Luke and Mark, you can tell that they, they happened at different times. But Matthew is just giving you stuff and then trying to put it together, probably for sermons or whatever. So in this case, what we have to understand is Matthew 24 starts out saying that Jesus went out of the temple, uh, they were departing, and, and the, he went back and said, look at all these things on the temple— not one stone would be left upon another. And then they didn't say anything, but he goes out to the Mount of Olives. So this is his Sunday sermon that he normally did. And this was uh, Matthew, again, 24 and 25 together. And so then when they got there, they're kind of all beside, all alone now. The, uh, they ask him this in verse 3, he says, uh, He sat on the Mount of Olives. Disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And that's in reference to him saying, when are the stones going to be kicked off of the temple? And mm -hmm. so that's 70 AD, that question. Yeah. But then they ask the question, and what shall be the sign of thy coming? That would be the second coming. And of the end, end of the world, it says in King James, it's actually the end of the age. So we're talking about the ages and the Essene calendar again. Mm -hmm. So basically what they're saying here is, Okay, tell, tell us what you were talking about, but they actually asked three separate questions. 
And so Matthew, I mean, is going to go in and record what Jesus says about all of this stuff put together. And so it's actually uh, an answer to several questions. One is, when is 70 AD? When is your second coming? When is the end of the age? And what things happen? He begins to explain a lot of that. So he's talking to the disciples and, and to us, anybody in that time period. Um, so what we need to do really uh, is sit down and look at all the extra stuff in Matthew compared to Luke and then kind of pull that out because the questions are slightly different. You got to figure out which which part is talking with which question. Hmm. Okay, so that does help me. Um, so, what about the response that I get? All, because a lot of people will say, "Oh no, Matthew twenty four, read it, look at it. It's you know, it's clearly we're going to be going through the tribulation. Look at the destruction and everything that they're talking about." Um, so that helps me a lot. To you basically layer it over Mark and Luke, and and then you can get more of a chronological um, answer. But what about the the response to, I hear oftentimes Darby, you know, invented the rapture through some girl that gave a vision or something. And mm-hmm. um, and then also they, th- they like to throw Schofield in there as well as a dispensational, you know, um, teacher. What, what do we, <laughs> I mean, you've kind of answered it already uh, with, with like the early church fathers, but what about that? Yeah, basically, it's there are some very weird dispensationalists, and I, they're usually called hyper-dispensationalists, that'll tell you to take parts of the Bible and throw them out and don't read them and that weird stuff. Mm. But dispensationalism basically just means through our 6,000 years, God does different things with different people at different times. Mm-hmm. Moral law is always the same. But for instance, uh, like their Hebrew Roots friends that talk about the law never changes— the laws specifically, like the 613 laws, over 400 of them refer to what the priests do in the temple. So that wouldn't even apply to Jews today. It wouldn't apply to anybody because there's no temple. Right, right. You know, so when you whittle that down, there's only about 70 or so commands that are still applicable. And those are all in the New Testament. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff is, is kind of hype. But as far as, as Darby goes, it's interesting because... It's basically true that Darby is the one that brought back to most people or the the public the idea of a pre-trib rapture. And I'm sure there was a, a Margaret, whatever her name was, that had a vision, and yeah. that may or may not have been legitimate. But the whole idea of saying that he invented it is ridiculous. And um, it, it would be just like if I said to you that— um, my name is Ken Johnson. Ken, my, my full name is Kenneth Wendell Johnson, okay? So I'm going to write the, the, the Kenneth Johnson version. I'm going to call it the KJV, <laughs> okay? And so you all know that I wrote the KJV. I, I just made it up last year. You all are going to look at me and say, you're an idiot, because I remember my grandparents having a KJV. It goes way back before you were even born. We all know that. Okay, so it's the same deal. Whatever Darby did, however he did it, the question is, did anybody ever talk about a pre-trib rapture before the 1700s in Darby? And you've got a lot of English uh, pastors in the 15 and 1600s that talk about a pre-trib rapture. Mm -hmm. You've got, uh, in the Middle Ages, not too many people talked about it, because you have the the Catholic stuff that came up and said, now we're amillennial and that. But you go all the way back to the first two centuries, and there's a lot of early church fathers that are uh, pre-trib mm. and very, very clear. 
it doesn't prove that it's right. Right. You know, they could be wrong, but you can't say that it that Darby invented it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> That's amazing. So um a question popped in my head about the 6000 years. Does that parallel the 6 days of creation and then the 7th year which is a, the millennial reign is that a rest for us in Christ and it does it parallel with the creation? Yeah, I think that's what the, you know how we have a Passover Seder, and when you look at the Seder, it very clearly ha- predicts the Messiah, because he comes and he, he dies for our sin, he's buried, he resurrects, he's the antidote for sin. All the ritual kind of teaches prophecy. Mm-hmm. Well, the ritual in a Sabbath basically teaches us that we have six days to work and one day to rest. And Paul even talked about that in Hebrews chapter 4, about the Christians have a type of Sabbath. It's not actually Sabbath. He calls it a Sabbaton, which is a, a type of Sabbath hmm. uh, or a Sabbath-like type thing. But he's saying that that is the millennial reign when Messiah comes. Hmm. And so the teaching has always been, and you see this in the Dead Sea Scrolls too, that we've got 6,000 years, and then we have a literal 1,000-year reign of the Messiah on earth. The way they teach it is that we have ages and the, the first three ages are 2,000 years apart. So the first age was the age of creation. The second was the age of Torah. The third would be called the age of grace. Mm-hmm. And it's called a temporary messianic kingdom because we have a, we understand Messiah, but Messiah is not really here for some reason. And then the last part is only 1,000 years. It's that seventh day. And that's when Messiah will actually be here. It'll be a real messianic kingdom. So that's their consistent teaching. And you see this among the church fathers and the Dead Sea Scrolls also. I was going to say just a real quick, and I'll let you go. The um, Just how you broke it down right there with the different, the age of creation, the age of Torah, and then um, that, grace, I mean, the, age, the of age of grace. I mean, is that what um, a dispensational, I mean, is that kind of fit into what would be a dispensational, because I get called it, you know, stupid dispy and all that stuff but i mean that that sounds to me is that what could mean yeah by well, i would say it's yeah it's dispensational um we tend to break it up and i've seen lots of things like uh the, the like the age in the garden of eden is one and this is another one sometimes mm-hmm. i'll have six or seven dispensations mm-hmm. maybe that's correct and maybe it's not the early church fathers talked about four the dead sea scrolls talk about four and they all, in those, very clearly talk about the time pre-Moses in the, the, the age of creation, we didn't have the Mosaic Law. Mm-hmm. So things changed. And then when you get to the age of, of grace, the, the, the temple stuff is set aside and we have something different. As a matter of fact, we were talking about the, the um, um, Passover Seder. Yeah. So originally there is a uh, Melchizedekian ritual that they did in the first age, and it consisted of wine and bread, similar to what we do, but we don't know that much about it. Well, when Moses comes along, he adds to it, and we have what we have, the Passover Seder. The scrolls talk about when Messiah comes to start the Age of Grace, he's going to change the Passover Seder to a (laughs) new type of ritual. And, of course, we see that in the Bible. We call it Christian communion. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing. But then they actually go forward and say, now, when he comes to start the the kingdom age, he's going to change the ritual again, because it's a totally different age. Right. 
Yeah, and it's really cool because they started practicing the new ritual uh, even before Christianity started. So they have a different take on on the rituals. But it's really cool because they said that in the kingdom age, you're going to have both Jews and Gentiles as brothers together. And what's something that's never happened in any ages before, you're also going to be taking communion with some sort of human beings that are immortal, hmm. which is unusual. And of course, oh. that's us. That's glorified you know. bodies. Yeah. And, and the angels. Really? So we're all together as one family. That's really so it's cool. just really cool. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's like, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, th this just crossed in, into my mind. And um, actually, Turner has it sitting right here. And maybe this is too far off. But uh, um, it, it was just spurred on by when we were talking about communion. And you have the book, The Gnostic Origins of uh, Roman Catholicism. And mm -hmm. this is um, one thing that... I know is so paramount to, uh, I was going to say, you know, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, but if to any Catholic listening is the, the worship or veneration of Mary is, you know, aside from that, the other thing that is just so, you know, sat the, the, the sacrament being able to take communion, you know, that's why they, uh, wield it as a, um, weapon against, uh, you know, being excommunicated and not being, it means they're not being able to, uh, take communion. Take, take communion yeah. And that's the worst thing that can happen. Um, mm -hmm. and I was going to say, you know, basically I, this is one of those things that I don't have an argument for. So I'm kind of asking, um, and I'm sure anyone that listening. So when Jesus says, you know, kind of, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I was always taught by, uh, you know, in Protestant churches and Protestant apologetics, uh, that uh, when Jesus says to, you know, gnaw on my body and uh, drink my wine, that, you know, the word for gnaw is, uh, it's, it, that's all symbolic. Whereas my Catholic friends would say, no, you know, he literally means to chew on my flesh in the way that he was eating. And then they point to, there's a couple of verses later where it talks about um, actually some disciples or people there when he says that leaving um, the Passover dinner, that uh, the Last Supper, because they were offended by Jesus saying that. Um, is there, I, I don't know, I'm just looking for, <laughs> uh, is that a Gnostic belief that that, that came from or is that... Uh, I guess help <laughs> all of the above. Okay. Uh, <laughs> or your thoughts yeah, on that. First off with, with Mary, um, they all make mention that Jesus had, or that Mary had other children uh, after the virgin birth. She did not remain a virgin. Mm -hmm. There's actually one part uh, that uh, Origen had talked about. And he said that there's a Gnostic group that is trying to make Mary into an ever virgin. The reason they're doing right. this is because they want to start worshiping her as a goddess. Mm -hmm. We know that that's not the case, that Jesus had Jesus and Mary, or Mary had other children. Mm -hmm. So he flat says that. Now, they would probably say Origen was weird, but, yeah. you know, and maybe he was, but I'm just saying that there's, there's enough records about that, uh, that it's pretty straightforward. So Mary is not... Uh, an ever virgin, a goddess, a uh, dispensator of grace, or anything like that. Even in the Gospels, it says, she says, I, my soul right. rejoices in God, my Savior. Mm -hmm. She recognizes she needs a Savior. So, as far as the uh, the communion part, 
we understand that uh, the ritual is actual wine and uh, lamb meat, okay? So it's the part of the Seder, the lamb, the meat, and the wine. And so the meat and the wine represent the Messiah. But then it's changed into, and even in the Passover Seder with this, the unleavened bread and the wine. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus said, this, rep- this is my body and my blood, uh, you know, as far as grammar goes, he could be saying, this literally is my body and blood, or this represents my body and blood. But since you know that he's talking about the unleavened bread and the wine, this is my body and blood, but the ritual actually means these two things are symbolic of the Passover lamb. Right. You've already got a symbol of a symbol of a symbol. And now he says, it actually means me. So he's talking about whether you're talking about the lamb or the unleavened bread, either one, it's my body that it's, the prophecy is about. He's talking about the whole idea is that it's it's a embedded prophecy. That makes so much sense. I, I don't know why I've never, uh, the, the fact that there was, uh, maybe this is just ignorant, I've never, I, I never had put it together that there was, a switch from the lamb uh, to the unleavened bread. So by him mm-hmm. saying that he was actually pointing back to what it used to be, which is the lamb and, you know, the God is the, the lamb, the rich, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus, the lamb sacrifice, um, you know, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, all that, uh, that's the disconnect. <laughs> that's exactly what mm-hmm. I was looking for is that just like how you said it, that he was, using this as pointing to a symbol of a symbol, uh, symbolic. Mm-hmm. Th- yeah. Thank you so much. That, that was, don't you love the church fathers when they answer questions like that? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and just the fact that, you know, the bread rep, you know, it's unleavened. Right. Right? Leaven is representative of sin. Right. 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 And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the fact that the, there would be no need for a lamb anymore because he right. would be the final sacrifice, exactly. you know, to be given. Um, and then John sees him in heaven. As, as a lamb that's been slain standing there alive but um mm-hmm. you know um so let me ask you a question in regard since we're talking about passover and sort of the feast where you know i'm 100 percent gentile got saved you know the first in my family no no church background uh you know my wife is a percentage jewish but she's you know was raised in a christian home where you know i have a lot of friends that and we recommend that, you know, there is no sin in celebrating the feasts, for instance, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if you want to celebrate a Passover, it's it's all symbolic of, you know, what it means, as we were just talking about. But what about things like um, the Sabbath? And what about things like, um, like, I just, I have a sense that some people are going a little bit further than what Scripture would, uh, necess- would, would really put on any, anyone. Uh, especially a Gentile, mm-hmm. um, what, not necessarily becoming Hebrew roots, but it's, I'll, I'll say it Judaizing. It, yeah, almost. it's like a, it feels Modern. like yeah, yeah, it feels like it a little bit. Like mm-hmm. oh, you got to you know the Sabbath is Saturday. You need to make Saturday your day that you don't do anything and prepare for it on Friday. And is there? I know there's no sin in doing that, but is is that's not a requirement to please God or to honor God in any way, is it? No, it's it's uh, even the Dead Sea Scrolls will tell you that, say, tell you that the Sabbath was designed for Israel alone. 
Mm. Not not anything to do with Jews. Now, the Hebrew Roots people will say, well, that can't be true, because you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created everything in seven days, and, or six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and he sanctified it, and he made it holy. Therefore, we must be doing something like that. Apparently, we've always done that, that kind of a thing. And what they don't realize is that he's doing a pattern, and it's it goes back to the calendar again. Mm. Uh to understand the calendar and understand the prophecies, you have to keep an accurate seven-day cycle. The entire calendar is built on sevens, mm-hmm. and if you get your weeks off, everything's off. So you have to sanctify it and make it holy. Holy just means set apart. Yeah. So this is the day when the week starts over. Now, you can take the day off. You cannot take the day off. You can do whatever, but you need to recognize this. And we do need a day of rest, and the whole concept was solidified and other rituals were given uh, with the law of Moses. Uh, but yeah, it's not, not um, uh, it, it's perfectly fine to do. But like, for instance, talking about the Passover Seder, chapter 12 of Exodus clearly says that what, when this is what the Jews do, from now on you're going to commemorate it, you're going to keep it on the 14th of uh, Nisan, that kind of stuff. When you get to the end of the chapter, it specifically says that um, only people that are circumcised are allowed to keep the Sabbath. So if you're living with Jews and you want to keep it, you have to get circumcised. And that means thoroughly converting to Judaism. It's mm-hmm. not just circumcision is the very last thing you did after a full year of conversion to mm-hmm. convert to Judaism. Now, that's fine, but Paul very clearly tells us the law that he lays down in every single church that he that he makes is that Gentiles stay Gentile, Jews stay Jews. Don't seek uncircumcision if you're Jewish, but don't seek circumcision if you're Gentile. And he clearly tells you don't get circumcised because then you're, you're under obligation to do the law. So hmm. everybody would say we're all circumcised anyway, and that may or may not be <clears throat> the proper one. But just think about this. If I'm a Roman centurion, I'm a pagan, not circumcised. I hear the gospel because I'm living in, in Israel, and I convert to Christianity. Paul says, okay, that's fine. Now you're a brother. Under no circumstances get circumcised. Now, if the law is still here, that means he is forbidden to do tabernacles, to do Passover, to do any of those rituals. Not that he's not supposed to. He is forbidden. Mm. Okay? And so it's really interesting to look at that. So my friends in the Hebrew Roots movement say that I'm, that I'm wrong when I say the law of Moses is done away. And it's like, well, it's kind of a moot point. If the law of Moses is done away with, then I'm free to celebrate the Passover, because I'm Gentile, uh, or, or not to. If the law of Moses has not been done away with, then I'm forbidden to do it. Huh. So why are they going out and doing it? Why are they breaking the law? Right. It's mm. like, well, we, we circumcised ourselves. Well, how do you know it's the proper way of doing it? Right. Mm. You know, there's another law that says you don't just make up your own stuff and go out. That's forming your own religion. Mm-hmm. So, and it's just like the um, the food laws. Genesis chapter nine with the Noahide laws say that Gentiles or nations you can eat anything that moves. Just make sure to kill it and cook it first. Mm-hmm. So anything that moves you can eat. Now you get to Leviticus and it says now from the Jews here's a list of kosher and non-kosher foods. But then you get to Deuteronomy and I always point to Deuteronomy uh, fourteen twenty one. It says that if something dies of itself, it's no longer kosher, 
you as a Jew can't eat it, but you can give it to a Gentile and he can eat it because <laughs> they can do that kind of thing. So you see this consistently. Yeah. There's Noahides uh, that are, you know, in the New Testament, we call them God-fearers, like Cornelius. Mm-hmm. So he was a Roman. He ate the, the ham sandwiches. He was uncircumcised, <laughs> but he loved the God of Israel and he was waiting for Messiah. That's all he was supposed to do. Wow. So what about, like, uh, they would say Sunday is not the day to go to church. You know, like, I always understood it that that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that's Mm -hmm. when they would gather at the tomb early on, on Sunday, to... Yeah, I had thought, I mean, just looking at the New Testament, um, you see that Paul always, and they'll bring this up too, Paul always goes to the Sabbath, or excuse me, to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, but if you stop and think about it, he's not there to study. He's there to try to convince witnesses right. that. Right. So you go there. I don't care when they go. Whenever they're going to be there, that's when we go to go street witnessing. Okay. Mm-hmm. But then he turns around and goes on Sunday to other people's places to worship the Lord among Christians. Right. And he says that, you know, when I come to uh, take the collection um, so that there's not a big deal, why don't you guys on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, when you get together, yeah. bring a little bit, store it up, and then when I come, I'll just grab it and go, and it won't be a big deal. So you can see the pattern. And I often thought that that uh, something had changed. But, you know, going back to the calendar again, um, um, in Matthew 24 and 25, this is, again, the uh, Jesus teaching the disciples privately. When you get to chapter 26, it says, Now, when he had finished saying these things, which is all that prophecy stuff, he said to the disciples, You know that the Passover is in two days. Now, if you know that the Passover is always on Tuesday, 14th of Nisan, two days prior to that would have been Sunday. And you see this pattern in there. The pattern is, on the Sabbath, you go to the temple you do sacrifices, or you go to the synagogue and, and listen to stuff, and it's the public stuff. And then on Sunday, you go, if you're, if you're part of a, a group, you go to your rabbi and you study the deep stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like today, uh, most of us, if you go to church on Sunday morning, it's going to be a very light teaching, an altar call maybe. It's all geared to, to new believers. But now Sunday night and Wednesday night, Oh, those can be really deep. Mm-hmm. And so that's that kind of stuff. So when you know that, you know, anybody that wants to study prophecy, and I've got all these scrolls, come to our Tuesday night Bible study. So that's when the disciples meet. And it's not just Paul and Jesus didn't do this. This is a pattern all the way through. So you're supposed to take the Sabbath off and rest and go do the rituals if you're Jewish and go study with your rabbi on Sunday mornings. And that's been the pattern all the way through. So it's not that anybody changed anything. The, the, the scripture, not the scriptures, the scrolls kind of teach uh, what actually takes place. Wow. So what about um, a Messianic Jew, someone mm-hmm. who is Jewish in heritage or lineage, but trusts in Messiah? Maybe they go to a Messianic congregation. Is there going to be a difference there for someone like that? Not, not usually. They'll meet on the Sabbath. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if I moved to wherever you guys are at and say 90% of the people worked in, I don't know, electronics or in mines or something, and for whatever reason to get the shipping right, they worked, say, uh, Wednesday through Monday. 
you know, and that was just common for 90% of the people in the town. Well, then I would start doing a church service on Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm. If that's when they're, you know, I don't care. It's just whenever we can work with the people, yeah. you know, and so that's, that's what we would be doing. So most of the Messianic uh, congregations, and, and to preface this, uh, again, I'm a Calvary Chapel guy, and Calvary Chapel has always been super friendly and works with Messianic groups, mm-hmm. but we don't Hebrew roots because it's, it's a bit of a difference. Sure. But a Messianic group will tell you that the law of Moses is not binding on Gentiles, but we want to keep our traditions. We want to be able to witness to our family. Mm. So if, if you want to fellowship with us, don't bring any non-kosher food if we have a potluck after church, and we're going to be meeting on Saturday mornings. Okay. So yeah. that's fine. Hmm. If I was going to a Chinese church, Mandarin Chinese, it'd be in their language with their kind of food and whatever day they met on. Yeah. It's perfectly fine. But the, the problem is when you get to, not the Messianics, but the Hebrew roots that say the law of Moses is, is binding on every person. Yeah. Well, that clearly violates Deuteronomy 14. It violates Exodus chapter 12. violates a lot of things, actually. Galatians. <laughs> yeah, the whole book of Galatians, yeah. <laughs> so, man. You... Well, I was going to say, uh, uh, we've already had you here. Do you have uh, one time for maybe one other kind of question that, is oh, being, sure. Sure. I appreciate it very much. The um, So we talked a lot about uh, the early church, the, the church fathers as being the first and second century, the disciples of the disciples, and maybe their disciples, uh, you know, one or two removed. Uh, I love how you, you had, um, in one of your talks, you had said basically, um, you know, there's this, I can't remember who it was, but he was talking, there was a Polycarp, di- maybe. Was it a Polycarp? That there was a disciple, a disciple, and he was talking about uh, basically this old guy that used to come around and talk about the prophecies, and that was John. And uh, so, like, the, you know, these guys that are very close into it. Um, mm-hmm. So one thing I was going to say, just as kind of to set all this up, um, last year, the year before, started... Uh, was just kind of going through uh, something and someone had suggested I start reading the Desert Fathers as just kind of not for theology, not for anything like that, um, just kind of to get more of a uh, uh, a more spiritual, just kind of to read some stuff to kind of refresh, um, or not really refresh, kind of a, a deepen my faith in some way. Um and I've gotten a lot out of just the way that they, they talked about uh, dealing with struggles or hardships or um, aesthetics, uh, the aesthetic practices and just all that stuff. Um, what do you think uh, about, you know, them? And, and I was going to say, I know that uh, uh, like definitely, you know, reading them have not become, uh, have no desire to become, you know, Greek Orthodox or Orthodox and the big o Orthodox church, because I know that those guys like to steal the desert fathers and that. Um, but as far as them, um, you know, is there, would you say that they're, I guess, what do you think about them, uh, about their teachings, about the stories? Um, and maybe, uh, cause I, I noticed there's another one you had said about, uh, in one of your talks that you, and I loved it where you just said all of the early church were Protestants <laughs> basically mm-hmm. in theology. Um, does that follow into the Desert Fathers or um, just kind of – that was a lot of me setting up stuff. But 
sure. maybe your thoughts if any of that yeah sense. the the desert desert fathers um what's going to happen in time is you're going to have a group of people that are orthodox and maybe they get off in some area and then later on in time they get better and so, so there's always going to be good sermons from each group hmm. uh the desert fathers though have a dubious background hmm. and what happened is remember i was talking about simon magus started the gnostic schools mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to the end of the second century, most of the Gnostic schools were dis- destroyed. Mm-hmm. And the the only Gnostics really left are in the uh, hills of Egypt. And so St. Anthony had heard about uh, these guys in the foothills of Egypt that have a new type of prophecy, a new type of uh, prayer, and a new type of, you know, this kind of stuff. And he goes down and finds them and then brings back uh, this teaching, and it becomes the Desert Fathers. Hmm. And so the concept of uh, the chants and things like that. The The problem is not so much the theology, uh, because I think the Desert uh, Fathers now would be more moral and or Catholic than, than the other, but they come from that kind of stuff. And St. Anthony is supposed to be the, if I remember correctly, the, the father of the, right. the Desert Fathers. Yeah. And so you have this kind of stuff, and there's a, a good amount of history uh, that goes along with that particular era, time period, that era. And so the, the the main thing that you want to watch for is the concept of sorcery. Mm-hmm. And the rabbis and the early church fathers taught that sorcery is um, you altering your mind. So if yes. I take drugs or meditate mm-hmm. in a certain way, I can alter my mind. And if I do that, I might actually be able to touch the demonic. And of course, right. they're going to give me good good visions and I'm going to fall for it. But uh, normally we can't see demons, we can't talk with them, but that's what sorcery is. Mm -hmm. And so the concept of uh, any type of um, prayer, it's usually today it's called contemplative prayer. Anything where you repeat the same thing, even the word Jesus, if you Mm -hmm. just say Jesus, 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 or a phrase or whatever, you, you do this kind of stuff over and over again, and it just kind of puts your mind in an altered state of consciousness. And that in itself, you know, is not dangerous, but it allows you to be in a state where you might be able to get a demonic vision. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if the Lord gives you a vision when you're asleep uh, or you pray for a vision, uh, that's one thing. But to seek that in that way is just a dangerous thing. So if you're if you're reading their stuff and there seems to be some good stuff in it, you know, that's okay. But I wouldn't do the chanting or the meditation Mm-hmm. or anything along those lines, and just know that they have a uh, history with the Gnostics way back when. I appreciate that. Yeah, and th- that was, uh, I was going to say, we've done, uh, uh, the first thing uh, that I think of when I hear the con- uh, that contemplative prayer, the uh, emptying of their mind, I mean, that's all very, uh, not even New Agey, uh, Buddhist, uh, when they have like mm. the the chanting with the Om, you know, that they say that Om is, you know, supposed to be this word of, you know, whatever that brought the world into existence, but at the same time, it's meaningless. <laughs> so that's why you're mm-hmm. say, re- doing these meaningless repetitions, which is something that Jesus directly, you know, taught against. So, yeah, right. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Well, it's been it's been <laughs> an hour and a half, so we've we've been really rocking and rolling. I really appreciate um, your time. What is there anything? Ken, that you would want to, as we close up here, uh, just that you're seeing, I know you, you deal, you, you speak in conferences and lectures and things. And 
Is there anything that you're seeing currently that is cause for uh, that you're noticing cause for alarm or warning uh, that's happening other than like the traditional like you yeah, have prosperity gospels really infiltrated or <laughs> you know mm. the, the NAR type of uh, you know uber charismatic stuff that's happening. Well, I would say there there's several things that are. I mean, Satan will always take things that are actually good and mm-hmm. and twist them. Mm-hmm. So we got to be careful not not to um, delve into politics too much. There's like the QAnon movement, which has got some good stuff in it, but it's also, you know, kind of strange. Yes. We always want to put our um, our trust in Jesus. Amen. And like for instance, I'm a I'm a Republican, so mm-hmm. I'm a constitutionalist. Yeah. Um, but. Um, if Trump was a good guy or if Trump was a bad guy, either way, the Lord put him in, the Lord allowed it, whatever. So we need to keep our focus on the Lord. We need to get out and vote. And I praise God for Roe v. Wade being overturned, and there's Amen. a lot of good stuff coming out now. Yes. So we need to keep on top of that and get our individual states to outlaw abortion and, and go forward with the rights and everything. So we got to be careful of that. But I've got friends that say, you know, the rapture is so close around the corner, nothing matters, I won't vote, I won't go witness, I won't do anything. (laughs) And that's the wrong attitude. Uh, We need to always occupy until he comes. Mm. So very, very important. Uh, In the church, uh, we have a movement, um, uh, several movements, things like, uh, you know, let's not look at uh, prophecy because it divides and it's Mm. confusing and so we'll just let it go. Well, according to the scrolls, it's a sin to ignore prophecy. And if you think about it, that makes sense. It would be a sin for me to ignore morality, which is what they do, too, uh, or ignore history. I never talk about David. We just don't do that here. That's kind of silly, you know, a lot of good moral issues. And prophecy is important. Prophecy is how we witness. When you talk about what's going to happen in Syria and Iran in the next few years, and people say you're crazy, but then it happens, Mm -hmm. they come back and say, how'd you know? Well, I'm a Christian. Let me explain it to you. Hmm. So we, we need to know prophecy fulfilled in our lifetime. And since Israel's come back, we've had some 50 prophecies fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And most people don't realize it. And it's really, really important. And there's a lot more to, to happen. Uh, we should not divide on a pre-trib, or a pre-mid or post-trib rapture. Mm-hmm. As a Calvary chapel, we're pre, pre-trib. So you're welcome to come here. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to teach, you know, but because uh, we need to keep doctrine proper, but we don't need to argue about those things. Yeah. In all things, we need to um, seek to learn, seek to study together, and not cause division. Mm-hmm. Man, that's, those are great parting words right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Man, well, Ken, I can't tell you how much I thank you for spending an hour and a half with us and sure. just letting me pepper you with questions. <laughs> Uh, I was looking forward to this for a long time because I've, and I literally have a notebook next to me with four or five questions that I wanted to make sure I got to you with. Um, I just want to encourage our listeners to look for biblefacts.org, mm-hmm. check out your YouTube, go to your uh, website, read your books. Um, I, you know, there's just, you're one of those authors and one of those guys that I can just endorse 100% and get behind, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm really grateful for. And I really do appreciate your ministry and all that you do. And uh, the insights that I've gained are invaluable. And um, yeah, and, and I'm just very, very grateful for your efforts to put that together and uh, Thank you. how the Lord's using you. 
But, um, man, the door is always open here <laughs> on this podcast. Anytime you want to come back, you let me know. And we may hit you up again, uh, have you come back if there's something that we want to uh, discuss specifically. But um, That sounds great. Yeah. And uh, we really appreciate it, man. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, will, we will catch you next time on All Out War, guys. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. If you had a blast, then we'd love to have you back for another episode. So please subscribe and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram at All Out War Podcast or on Twitter at AOWcast. These episodes are also available on YouTube unless they contain a little too much truth. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.